Blog Talk Radio. And thank you for joining us for Three Women, Three Ways. We have a special guest with us today, and I must confess that this is an area where I need educating as well. So we're going to rely on her to bring us all up to speed and knowledgeable about the topic of marginalized populations when it comes to domestic violence. Dawn Monet is... uh, right now working with the, oh gosh, uh, Northwest Network of Bisexual, Trans, Lesbian, and Gay Survivors of Abuse, and she's been involved in domestic violence issues for about 15 years, and she has a special interest in art therapy. I was uh, interested to see that because I know that there's been a lot of uh, work with art therapy in uh, children a lot, but I didn't know uh, whether or not that is used a lot with adults who've experienced trauma. So... That being said, thank you for joining us, Don. Sure. <laughs> yeah, would you thank like you. to add anything to your... Yeah, so I'll tell you a little bit about um, how I came to the Northwest Network and, uh, and a little introduction about the work that we do. So I initially came to the organization as a survivor seeking help, and uh, that was... Um, that experience of encountering the Northwest Network and getting the, the education and empowerment tools uh, that I needed really helped serve me uh, both as then a volunteer for the organization and ultimately I served as president of the board as well. And then that experience really uh, helped uh, launch my career. At the time, I was working in high tech in sales and marketing. Uh, some of those tools, some of the awareness that I gained were really, really helpful in my overall life skills. And then about a year ago, I had an opportunity to come on board to the Northwest Network working in development and communications and really helped to bring some of those some of those skills from high tech here to the Northwest Network to help further our work, further the mission, and get the word out to um, folks that might need our help. Terrific. Terrific. Well, as I told you off air, I tend to be pretty knowledgeable about domestic violence in general but not necessarily with marginalized populations, which I guess explains why they're marginalized. <laughs> right. People must be like... <laughs> um, right, and, and so there's... Go ahead. Oh, I know that uh, this occurs. I know that, you know, that domestic violence isn't always just man-woman. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm aware of this, but because it is a smaller percentage of the uh, victimization we see, I guess we tend to study more the main line of uh, victimization. And we should also be aware that this occurs. You know, the marginalized populations are a huge part of domestic violence. Can you explain to us a little bit what marginalized population means? I think most of us know, but just to be sure. Right. So so marginalized literally is is what it sounds like. And while our organization focuses on specifically on the LGBT community, also we use that particular term to refer to other communities that are not part of the mainstream. So that could include um, communities of color or it might include um, immigrant communities. Um, So and then there's a place where, for instance, in our community where those things intersect, right? So someone might be a person of color who is also an immigrant, who is also a lesbian survivor, right? So there's a place where those things can intersect and also be unique communities, but tend to be outside of, um, outside of our mainstream culture. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I imagine that ha- that happens frequently where there's a crossover, not just one um, uh, demographic uh, involved in a particular episode or, or situation. Um, okay, so is it different? Is domestic violence different for marginalized populations? And is that the best so, term to keep using? Well, I so we can, certainly we can use the term marginalized populations, and then a lot of what I'll be talking about is is specifically to the community that I work in, which is the LGBT community. Um, 
But what I'll say is what we know statistically, so there was a, a big uh, bunch of data that came out from the CDC earlier in the year, and really what we know is that domestic violence happens in the LGBT community at the same rates that it's happening in the larger population. So basically about 30% of us are um, either surviving or have survived a domestic violence situation. So, okay. um, so what that tells us, right? So it, it looks the same, but there are some, some unique obstacles for folks in our community when they're seeking help. So for instance, um, if, you, if you know you have a domestic violence situation going on and you are working with a heterosexual couple, the determining factor is almost always gender, right? So we say, oh, okay, well, so we're going to just assume here that most likely it is the man who is battering the woman. So that's just kind of a lens that we have coming from that perspective. What changes um, when you don't have gender as your primary source of information is that we need to have some other types of intelligence to understand the dynamics of the relationship that's going on and understand who is surviving and who might be battering. So okay. for our organization, that means some really in-depth skills around assessing a situation. Right? Okay. Yes. So, and then once we, you know, so, so that sort of uh, pre presents an upfront challenge um, for those folks who are working with domestic violence survivors. And then on top of that, there become some additional barriers for folks in our community um, and also in larger, in other marginalized communities. For instance, um, historically, our community hasn't had great relationships with police. So that may not be a place that you're going to call for help even if you're in danger, right? And so also um, there are specific challenges if you're trying to find shelter. For instance, if you're a gay man trying to find shelter, it may be assumed if you call a shelter that you are a man trying to get in to find your spouse. Um, and so ah, there's been okay. some specific challenges around shelter, um, and conversely, is it safe for um, a lesbian woman who's um, inside of a shelter? Is she um, protected from her female partner? So there's, there's been historically some issues around that. But in the larger context, some of those things around discrimination, um, whether you're out to your family and whether your family is supporting you, those things can play a huge role in how quickly you're getting help, um, and the resources that are available to you. Well, and am I wrong in assuming that it also would depend on the, uh, the quality of help? I mean, it also influences the quality of help? It can influence the quality of help, and um, especially um, for those organizations, again, that may not have a lot of tools when they are encountering someone who is um, trans or lesbian or gay or bisexual. So uh, one of the other, one of the huge pieces of work that we do in our organization is technical assistance. So we go out and we train other organizations on um, how to, what are some tools? We train them on our assessment tool so that they can be better equipped to, um, to help LGBT survivors when they encounter those survivors. Okay, so that sounds like a really handy thing to do. Is that uh, you know uh, uh, utilized a lot in in this community? You're in the Pacific Northwest, as am I, um, and I imagine that your geographic location might be a factor in in how much education is required. Yes, yeah, so we clearly we work a lot with local organizations, um, but I will say, thanks to technology, we have really been able to extend our reach. So one of the things that we do is offer uh, a very in-depth series of webinars. And so, for instance, we run a, a series around assessment, very, very popular. We just restarted that series. And I think our last webinar, we had about 150 people across the nation attending. 
Very so, good. Very good. That, and when that, you mean assessment, uh, just for people who are, are not familiar with the, the, the shelter uh, language, when you go to a shelter, um, they want to know exactly what's happening with you or as close as they, could, they can. So they mm-hmm. call that an assessment to find mm-hmm. out you know, what your story is and how they can best help and where you have the most need. Am I right on that? That's right. And so we don't offer shelter services, but what we do offer is advocacy. And when folks call in uh, to our services, we have a very in-depth assessment process with those folks so that we can determine if this person is surviving, if this person is perhaps battering, if something else is going on. So every, you know, once in a while, someone calls in, and um, their their op- opinion or their view is that they're surviving. And what we see is that ah, this person actually is maybe needing some help with some mental health services. That the ah. relationship is not the source of the issue here, but let's let's work with some partner organizations and get these folks the right resources. So in that assessment process, we're really looking at, you know, really what's going on and what are the right resources for this individual that's calling in. Do they need, do they need help um, as a batterer? Do they need services for uh, their own surviving or is something else going on or a combination of things? Okay. And I would imagine complex, human nature being what it is, it's usually a, a combination of things, um, knowing, knowing that we are, um, we're pretty complex creatures, am I right? We there? are complex, right. <laughs> and when we're dealing with, again, so with marginalized communities, the complexity can even be more. So, um, so for instance, um, lack of access to housing if discrimination is going on, um, all of the things that come into play around oppression, what someone might be encountering in the world. Um, we know that LGBT youth are much more likely to be homeless than other youth. right? So some of those kinds of things adds to the complexity of what someone might come to our door with. Okay. Give us some scenarios um, of, of different types of, or give us examples of scenarios of different types of situations that you might find yourself working with. Well, you so one of the, yeah, so one of the things I'll talk a little bit about here is what frame that around what some of the obstacles are, some of the unique things about our community. So one thing is that. Um, our community is relatively small. So even within a big metropolitan area like Seattle, it's very likely that if I was in an abusive relationship, and let's just say I've successfully moved on, things are great for me, but there is a high likelihood that I might encounter that abusive ex-partner within the community. I might see them at a pride celebration, or I might run into them at the local bar. Um, So because our community is small, um, I don't have as much freedom to just never encounter this person. So some other types of skill building are really important the ability to really set clear boundaries, the ability to understand at any given point, hey, these are my choices that I can make. Uh, Because I may not want to make the choice of just isolating myself from my community. I want to be active and involved, and I'm not going to have the power to have that person not be there. So so what are some tools that I can have? So that's one way in which... um, just being, you know, experiencing domestic violence within our community can have a unique thing. The other, uh, there's some other things about, um, while we're in a really uh, interesting and progressive time, um, gay marriage is happening, we're seeing lots of, of progress in that way, but at the same time, many folks are still in various stages of coming out, they may or may not work in uh, an environment that's entirely open. So uh, if I'm 
um, if I'm in an abusive relationship, my partner might be threatening to out me at work. Uh, maybe okay. maybe she knows that that my boss is particularly homophobic, and so that outing uh, is really a, a place of vulnerability and increases that that partner's ability to control my choices. Okay. So, so that's that, our scenario. You know, yeah. So so that gives you a sense of like there can be some additional layers to what's happening for the experience of someone who. Um, is gay, lesbian, or bisexual, or trans. Okay. Um, so you've got that additional, uh, in addition to the, the actual situation of abuse, you've got that fear of disclosure or, or um, uh, somebody, somebody outing you, I guess is the right term, um, right. when you don't want to be. Right. So, and again, if we think about, you know, if we, we step back and we look at that larger um, sort of domestic violence um, tool of like power and control, right? So we know that it's more than just someone is getting hit. We know that there are other things that are happening. Um, if we think about that that model of power and control, then we can see that something like outing, like outing a partner to their family or outing someone to their, uh, to their workplace, that becomes part of that system of power and control and reducing a person's ability to make choices for their own life. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the same kind of situation happens a lot with immigrants who may not be documented. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, any so any that, kind of additional power that the abuser can hold over that person, they're going to use. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's an, that's an excellent example of um, the ability to expose and that that might place that survivor in another situation of danger. Am I now in danger of being deport, deported? Right? Yes. Or am I, I in danger of being fired? Right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so, um, so we've those, got that. Tools. Yeah. yeah. So we've got uh, multiple um, dangers or multiple threats going on in a situation that may be, you know, different from the regular um, male, female, traditional, you know, what we traditionally expect from domestic violence situations. And the male, female, married or unmarried, but uh, definitely male on female heterosexual abuse. Right. And I would imagine that uh, when you go to a shelter, if, if you are lucky enough to be able to find a shelter that will accommodate you uh, in your situation, um, I would think that that would be an additional um, uh, issue that may not be able to be addressed by that shelter. And it sounds like your organization is trying its best to educate shelters so that they can help people. Exactly. So there's a couple of really awesome things that are happening right now. So the the recent okay. passage. May I jump? Uh, I'm going to yeah. interrupt you a little bit, Don, and give out our phone number. If you're out there listening oh, sure. and you are as ignorant about this issue as I am, or if you're not, if you know this situation and you've lived this situation, give us a phone call. We would love to hear from you. That number is one six four six three seven eight zero four three zero. That's six four six. Three seven eight zero four three zero, and I'm getting a very good education here, and I hope you are as well. Continue, Don. Some progress in this area. Yeah. So there's been a little bit of progress in that the recent uh, passage of the Violence Against Women Act included provisions to equalize shelter access for LGBT folks as well as men. Mm-hmm. And so there's some huge changes going on, and shelters are. Um, going through some changes and also getting some education. So, um, so that is positive, so that they understand, um, so that they're getting educated on, okay, other people besides the sort of, you know, mainstream heterosexual domestic violence survivors might be coming our direction. As part of that, um, as part of that passage, uh, our organization was awarded a federal grant, and we are um, working at a national level on an education piece around um, basically training those folks to get up to speed on um, how to 
cultural sensitivity for for you know that sort of term that we use to bring folks up to speed on how to work with LGBT survivors. Okay. So Go ahead. When you're when you're uh, working with survivors, are I mean, is there, I would imagine there's a, a huge commonality, more commonality than um, um, differences. Am I right in that assumption? Um, it, when you say working with, do you mean um, commonality between just the marginalized populations and, the, and what we consider the mainstream populations? Yeah, so I think that one of the things, you know, so some of those basics that we know f- from, you know, the the work of domestic domestic violence, largely, um, that those systems of power and control, um, those kinds of things, there's a huge common base there. And then uh-huh. what we like to do is just sort of open that up, and then look at the larger systems in place that allow those allow power and control to exist. And so, for instance, there are like one commonality um, that affects us all. If we think about uh, something like affordable housing, right? So that, that issue affects heterosexual women attempting to leave a domestic violence situation. That there inability to afford housing can often be a determining factor. That is, of course, um, an issue that hits our community hard as well. Right? So affordable housing, which you know, we might think of as a completely separate uh, economic justice issue, really has a huge role in how survivors are able to um, have greater choices. Okay. All right. And then one um, of the other oh, – go ahead. No, you go. You're on a roll. (laughs) I was just going to say, one of the other common things um, that we've been working with in our community uh, to a large extent, and again, there's some new data coming out from the CDC that just underscores this, is that survivors in general turn to friends and family before they turn to other services. And uh, so we've been doing a lot of work for years around educating our own community and doing prevention work out in our own community. And what we are really excited about is getting in more deeply and literally training friends and family to be better responders. Because we know, again, across the board, survivors reach out to a friend or a family member first if that person is able to respond in a way that is helpful, the opportunity to reduce violence is huge. And, and that's across the board. That is exactly what happens in um, uh, abusive situations. The, it's kind of like you test the waters with your family mm-hmm. to see what kind of reaction, whether you're going to get dismissed or whether you're going to be uh, given some assistance here or given, um, acknowledged, acknowledged and given credibility for your situation. Absolutely. And, and I think that that's, uh, that that's pretty huge because that sets the, the, the foundation for what you're going to do, how much you're going to pursue this and how you're going to continue uh, to try and get out of that situation. I know, and I would imagine again, these are more commonalities than differences in these pop- in all populations. That oftentimes, when a, a survivor goes or a victim goes to friends, family, they're told, or, or minister for that matter, uh, clergy, um, they're told, well, you know, it, it takes two, or you have to uh, keep trying, or you know, you. you just they they dismiss the extent of what it is that's going on in many cases, and basically what that does is just put the victim right back into doubting herself and doubting whether or not um, this situation is as bad as as he or she thinks. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I will just as a resource uh, for for listeners, we have a, a website called FarOut.org. And that comes from a program that we did a few years back called Friends Are Reaching Out. 
And on farout.org, there are tons of resources. There's some great reading materials as well as some, um, some downloadable little worksheets for folks. So these are for survivors, but mostly for f- friends and family, how to start the conversation. Um, so you're concerned. How do you start a conversation with your daughter um, because you're concerned about what's going on in her relationship? So we've got some conversation starters, some, uh, some worksheets on how to set boundaries, how to offer help. Right, so one of the things that, again, across all communities um, is that we often, when we're outside the situation, uh, we will jump to the, well, you've got to leave. And there are a lot of complexities around leaving. So there can be steps in between here and leaving. And so we've got some great things for, oh, you know what would be helpful for this survivor? It would be helpful if you provided some child care while she went to an advocacy appointment or she went to a job interview so that she could be more empowered economically. So there's ways that as friends and family we can respond to give, again, more choices to a survivor um, that might be appropriate and accessible to her. Okay. You're assuming, though, or that that is assuming that friends and family um, – really do want to step in and help. Um, I think a lot of times friends and family don't. They want to, um, it, it's uncomfortable to hear about uh, abuse and situations like this. So I think a lot of people just want to back off. They want to make it her problem and they want to back off. And even if they have, uh, you know, the the person's best motives at heart, they still don't want to um, jump in too much. Do you think that your uh, organization is making some headway in that? Or well, maybe you don't agree with that? Well, I think um, I think there's two things. I think that one is that when we are dealing with intimate violence, uh, we have a lot of cultural norms that we're still overcoming around um, that should be behind closed doors, that is private business. So we're all in, you know, the sort of evolution of that, right? So on the one hand, we don't want to hear it. One of the things I just like to remind people, the statistics are 30%. Again, it's just everywhere you go, 30% of people yep. are surviving or have Which survived. And so, you know, when I think about a lot that, of I'm people. like, oh, it's a lot. So if you think about here I am, and let's just say I've got one good friend on my right and one good friend on my left, one of us is surviving or has survived, mm-hmm. right? So we think about uh, when we think about just the that rate and we think about the individuals, I think it becomes easier for us to engage around the idea of, okay, what could I do if someone were to ask me for help, right? And most of us, I think one of the reasons that we, we don't want to get involved is we don't actually know what to do. I think that's right. right. I think you know, you're like, absolutely right on that. You know, we, just, we really just are ill-equipped because, well, it's dangerous. There's a, ton, there's a ton of things we just don't know what to do. And what we also know statistically is the sooner that intervention is, help, is, is happening, the sooner that those conversations are happening, the more likely the overall harm will be reduced. Okay. So the longer right. it goes on, so, right, the more dangerous it gets. So expediency of getting help is very important for victims. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so that uh, can be like you're, you know, you're sitting around at Christmas dinner and you just kind of notice something that's really you know, it just kind of feels not right. Like it just doesn't feel like this person is empowered or it just feels like there's something wrong. So how do you start that conversation of, you know, hey, this this made me feel uncomfortable. Just wanted to ask if you're okay. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you know, maybe the person says, Oh, I'm fine, I'm like, great. You know, if if ever you're not okay or if you you know, just want to chat, you know, I'm I'm open. 
That sounds be that easy. That would be a lovely way, um, I think, to approach that topic. Because oftentimes the victim doesn't want to talk about it. They feel uncomfortable about mm-hmm. it themselves. Even if they want some sort of help, it's, it's hard to talk about. It's hard to talk about, I think. Absolutely. And, and for, for many LGBT folks, um, so many of us have really fought hard to just have the relationship we want. And so sometimes there is that feeling of, of um, I don't want people to judge me as a queer person because I'm in this abusive relationship or I don't want you to think bad of our community in a general way because this bad thing is happening. And so there can be that I want to be, you know, I want to be the perfect lesbian. I want to be, you know, <laughs> admirable <laughs> and this and and yet my relationship is not. Yeah. And so um so we get that sort of additional rub of so we don't want to tell folks that things aren't really actually as great as as I've been pretending. Yeah. Well, and again, I think that that holds true for just about any victim. Um, you know, there's that sense of shame that you, you've you done something wrong, um, that you're not, you know, uh, Miss Perfect. You're not, you're not the Martha Stewart of relationships. And, of course, right. the abuser is usually perfectly happy to continue <laughs> letting you have that idea. Um, so, yeah, I think that, um, again, I'm seeing a lot of commonalities here. I'm mm-hmm. seeing a lot Absolutely. of commonalities. Which, again, I, I plead ignorance in this area. Um, I didn't expect, quite frankly. I didn't expect um, that there would be so many commonalities. Does that make me terrible? <laughs> well, no, and I think that if you think about, okay, so here is this marginalized community with, um, with these additional sort of obstacles to getting help, what that does is for the person who's battering, it's just like, oh, those are a few more tools in their toolbox to hold that power and control, right? So, um, okay, so in addition maybe to some, you know, economic um, tools over here that I've got over my partner, oh, I've also got, um, I can out them, right? So you you sort of like you get these extra little um, things that become part of that complex picture of how someone might be controlling another human being. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Give us a call, please. We'd, I'd love to have you uh, join us in this conversation. Number is 646-378-0430. 646-378-0430. And, uh, gosh, you know, take advantage of uh, Don's expertise here. I'm uh, learning a lot. I'm taking notes, Don. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking some notes here. Um, so I appreciate you giving us the opportunity to learn more about this area. Yeah. So, okay, I want to go back to that whole shelter um, idea, okay? The idea of men who are abused. And we get a lot, a lot of um, information out there about how men are abused too, men are abused too. Um, and... Of course, statistically, you know, the numbers of men, yes, they are, but the numbers are just so low compared to women who are abused. Included in those men who are abused are gay people, right? Not necessarily who could be, who could be abused by another man. Um, or um, So how does that skew or change or help us understand those statistics about how many men are abused? So I can't speak as um, intelligently to larger statistics around heterosexual men, but again, what, what we do know is that um, the stats for, for gay and bisexual men are comparable, so about 30%. Okay. Within, okay. Yeah, are experiencing intimate violence. Um, and so there are again some you know some cultural boundaries or some some cultural um, biases around um, men, right? So um, if two men are together and one is battering the other, well, you know, just man up, right? 
you should be able to defend yes. yourself when, of course, just inappropriate, right, that that's yes, happening. Yes, exactly. So we have some of those kind of biases around masculinity and what it means to be a man um, that can be super challenging in terms of um, uh, gay and bisexual men seeking help. So that's just kind of that underlying, you know, bias that we have. And then, of course, there is some, um, some of, again, those layers of being bisexual or gay within our culture, um, some of the additional oppression that might be going on, um, the inability to find uh, folks that you could talk to about it. And, and then on top of it, the... Uh, Gay and bi men can be particularly suspect if they are seeking help from a traditional domestic violence organization in which men are suspect. Yes. Right. So, again, that's one of the places where just doing a lot of um, technical assistance for organizations so that they can kind of get up to speed on how to have those conversations and get the information they need to know. Well, how can a, a, a traditional shelter uh, provide services for the, so many people? I mean, it's hard enough to just provide services, but now if they're supposed to, um, you know, with Title IX, make uh, services available to males, um, right. does, doesn't that put an, an undue burden on shelters? Um, I, or well, maybe it's not. Well, so I think that... Um, there, there's a couple of answers here. Is that one, uh, you know, shelters should be available to everyone who needs them. But the yeah. other thing is, is that we, as a society, can never build enough shelter space to accommodate the folks that need shelter. Right. So yeah. that is a conundrum. And so what I would say is that that is why it is so important that we are also putting our resources into prevention strategies, education, um, developing friends and family networks, those, those particular things, um, bang for the buck, go further. Um, and so we have to do kind of both things at once, understanding that if we really look at the volume of what we would actually have to do. Because even even if you are a heterosexual woman seeking shelter right now in King County, it's tight. You're yeah. probably going to be on a waiting list, right? So, so we know that shelter space is already overwhelmed. So, yes, that's a challenge. And let's look at some other strategies so that we can... Um, we have other ways of dealing with this issue. So, again, education, getting friends and family engaged, and really the, the community at large engaged in supporting, um, in su- supporting you know, loving relationships where people have choices. Absolutely. And by, um, as you said, if the friends and family learn something, they might be able to help uh, directly as well, instead of the victim having to rely on a shelter. Now, of course, that wouldn't necessarily be the case always, but maybe. Absolutely. Know. Right. And so, again, when um, so we think about, you know, when shelter is needed um, and the types of situations that, you know, develop. So usually you're cohabitating with somebody and, and home no longer is safe. Right, so you need to be right. in a place where it's away from home. So if we back, if we could, if we could, you know, just sort of put the thing in reverse for a moment, and again, we're sitting around at the holiday dinner, and we're concerned if we can open up that conversation sooner, then maybe that need for shelter down the road isn't there. Um, or maybe there are other options. Again, you know, affordable housing, equal pay for women, those are things that actually reduce our need for shelter because the more economic choices that women have in particular, and by the way, when, you know, when women um, have greater choices, 
that usually means LGBT folks have greater choices. Um, in part because some of us are women, but also because some of those those sort of sexist patriarchal ideas can get, say, projected onto gay men because they're seen as less masculine, right? So there's a way in which um, when we lift some of those issues, all boats rise. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, there's benefits all around when you start, as you said, lifting some of those uh, right. prejudices. So yeah, um, I can I, you know I'm, I can see that, and again I'm seeing so many similarities. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think that sometimes heterosexual people think that um, other other folks, the marginalized folks, are so different. And yet, talking about this issue, I'm getting the sense that you know we're all in the same boat in some of these things. Right. It's just that some of us may find it a little easier to get understanding or support. Um, because, you know, we, we talked about uh, situations of heterosexual domestic violence, and so the community at large tends to be more aware of that. Um, yeah, and I would say also yeah. that I think that so many um, really awesome um, heterosexual folks who are out there voting for LGBT rights and are allies, sometimes they're so um, positive about our community um, that they forget that we have all of the same things going on. Sure, right? yeah. That, you know, that there's intimate violence and that our relationships are complicated and not all great and, you know, that there are... Um, some bad people in a great community. So all of those things. So sometimes in you know in that um, desire to um, help us move forward, um, there's a little blind spot on. Oh right, these other problems are happening too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can understand that. So talk about survivorship. I'm kind of familiar with you know stages and challenges that uh, heterosexual women have when they're trying to uh, leave a domestic violence situation. Uh, challenges such as um, enough money, getting legal representation sometimes, um, you know we've talked about finding a shelter, um, and also just the whole uh, wrapping your mind around it. I think that oftentimes women who've been in domestic violence shelters have to um, learn to pull themselves away from that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and is that also similar? In, well, there's in the certain LGBT? yeah, there's certainly some uh, some similarities there. One thing I'll call out that can be particularly challenging. Um, for LGBT survivors is around uh, the the legal piece. And uh, so we're still seeing just a huge range of um, outcomes from being involved in the legal system if you are an LGBT survivor. So clearly, you know, in Washington State, um, we have greater rights for LGBT people than in a lot of other places in the U.S., right? So there are still risks for um, for LGBT survivors of losing children um, because of their sexual orientation or identity. There are still some of those very real um, discrimination pieces that play out for our community. So um, we do actually have a um, a legal toolkit that we created for, again, other advocates. So how can they work with LGBT folks that are encountering the legal system? So that can be a particularly um, unknown and scary place for our community uh, because we often don't, that can be really up to a particular judge and um, and their own biases. So that's a place where it's kind of, um, you know, kind of a hit and miss. There's a lot of um, a lot of unknowns there, uh, a lot of not great things happening. So so that's one piece that is extremely complex for our community. 
and for that whole sort of journey through surviving and moving from, say, being um, legally tied either with children or with property and all those things to a batterer and then sort of unhooking yourself from all that. So that's a very complex area for our community. And then I would say that um, many of the other things around uh, that piece of surviving and moving on uh, from an abusive relationship, again, there are definitely some similarities when you think about um, a sort of women at large and their experience often, again, based around um, economic justice issues, uh, access to housing, access to work and child care. Those things are things that we share um, with, you yeah. know, with that community. So similar issues, uh, especially if there are children involved. But again, um, economic issues, And an abuser will often issues. go for the children. You know, the, that's one way to continue abusing uh, the victim uh, is to go for the children. And uh, that happens a lot, um, unfortunately. Um, it, it's a big hammer to hold over someone's head, uh, I think. So... Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, uh, terrible. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, so I will say on the positive side, I mean, one of the things that we uh, offer in our community is we have a um, relationship skills class series that was created out of the material that came from survivors who came through our programs. Um, and that, it's extremely popular. It is standing room only every single time that we run it, and we run that um, in our LGBT community here in Seattle. And we also we also offer the curriculum out to other programs that want to um, have that in their community as well. We have had really positive feedback from people going through that particular program and really getting some great skills, whether or not they, they identify as a survivor or whether they're just trying to get some better relationship skills, right? Really great feedback on that class helping them formulate the relationships that they want to have. Very good. Very good. Yeah, and that's always a crucial part of, um, you know, recovery, if you will call it that, um, of people getting out of abusive relationships. You know, if what you have known is abuse, and, and a lot of times that's what we've known in our families of origin as well, um, it's hard to know what's normal and right. appropriate. It's hard Absolutely. to know, you know. Absolutely. Um, and, you know. and I will say one of the sort of the lens that we bring is also um, how – uh, as many people are survivors of, of trauma, and then if you experience the world, say, as a trans person or as a gay person, how the world is receiving you and how you might be experiencing oppression or racism or those kinds of things also contributes to your experience of trauma in the world. And so we try to shine a light on that so people have more information about, oh, it's not just me. I'm actually experiencing this thing that is oppression. Right? So that they have more information about the context within which they live and, and can see their experience in a, in a broader way. Do you consider um, the uh, – I had mentioned earlier about the uh, um, immigrant, the undocumented immigrant. Do you see that as part of the marginalized population as well, or are we just talking about um, orientation? Absolutely. So um, we – so there are huge barriers for undocumented people in in this country. Um whether or not they be LGBT survivors or whether they are heterosexual survivors, um, we see just huge room for additional abuse of those folks um, because of their lack of status. And so, again, there have been some, um, some, some recent rulings so that undocumented immigrant 
survivors can seek help without threat of being deported. That is super important. And of course, um, this does also affect our LGBT community in that we're very, very new in um, legal ground around, um, let's say, you know, an undocumented immigrant is partnered with a United States citizen and where that marriage is legal versus not legal and how the courts are playing out with that. But again, that can be a place where there's an additional tool and an additional risk for that person. Yeah. Oh, so complicated, as if domestic violence weren't complicated enough, but right. to know how it affects all these different uh, populations is just amazing. I was reading um, uh, a book not too long ago about how um, we tend to not think about rich women who uh, right. experience domestic violence and that they certainly uh, have their own resources and, you know, why should uh, they focus on shelters and things like that, um, when in fact they're all, we're all in the same boat when you talk about these issues. Um, right, we're all in the same boat. And not be there. Yeah, again, that statistic kind of, again, it is across socioeconomic status. Yeah. Right, so that really, again, everywhere we are, we can simply look around and say, wow, 30%, that's... Yeah. That's pretty big. It is indeed. Uh, it is indeed. Are the, you know, we, we always say that um, domestic violence is about power and control, whether you want to call it domestic violence or intimate partner violence or whatever it is. It's about power and control. And I would suspect that that's the same in any population as well. Or am mm-hmm, I wrong? Absolutely. Oh, you're, okay. no, that's okay. absolutely right. And those are the things that, um, again, as part of, assessing someone's experience, um, that is a huge thing that we're looking for, is who's, who's kind of wielding the power here? Whose choices are reduced? Um, you know, how is that playing out? Whether or not um, there is actual physical battery going on, uh, we're still looking at that underlying foundation. That is the key that, you know, kind of lets us in on, okay, yeah, this, um, this is intimate violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, again, good point. It's not always physical violence. It can often be um, other kinds of violence, you know, as well, or control, you know, when you were talking Absolute, about domestic absolutely. violence issues. So, you know, it's, it's better to talk about control than it is to talk about um, scars and, you know, and different um, um, ways that, you know, physical harm can occur for a victim, although certainly that happens as well. So what I'm left with here is that, again, we have more common uh, territory than not. Um, do victims in marginalized communities, are they uh, interested in uh, sharing their experiences after they're out of it? Are they interested in educating other people in the community about what they've experienced, or how, how does that happen? Well, so we um, we do, certainly don't ask survivors to do that. But what we find, um, again, our organization was founded by survivors and continues to be by and for survivors. And what we find is as folks go through, uh, you know, encountering us as a survivor, we often find the same people return to us as volunteers, as board members, that they'll go out and speak on our behalf, um, that that can look in many other, you know, different ways. They often become really um, great cheerleaders for our relationship skills class. Uh, So we find in general that that conversation opens up. And also, there's also a great thing in which um, folks don't necessarily feel that they have to be defined by that particular thing in their life. And many of them feel empowered to just move on, you know, and that feels great too, to just move on. And I'm just, I'm a person who has had this experience and it doesn't define me. And that's a perfectly wonderful way to keep living your life after something like this. Um, we have 
such short time left. We have about five minutes left. You want to leave us with some final messages that maybe we didn't get a chance to cover in our conversation? Well, I think one I'll just kind of come back to is that all of us, no matter how we personally identify who our friends are, is that we have the power to really positively affect other folks who are experiencing domestic violence. We can be an awesome friend and family member. And so certainly if you're experiencing um, issues in your relationship that you're concerned about, seek help. You know, please give us a call. And also, take an opportunity. Go to, to farout.org or seek out some educational materials for yourself so you can just be an awesome friend and family member and you can really be empowered to have that conversation of, hey, I'm concerned. How can I support you? That would be a great yeah. tool to walk away with. Well, and I, um, as far as educating the family and friends of, I'll do a shameless self-promotion self, uh, here. I wrote a book called Why Doesn't She Just Leave? A New Perspective, and that's available on Amazon. And that uh, is a, a group of women's stories supported by a little research. I don't inundate people with the research, but just enough to let readers know that, you know, this is not a unique situation, that these situations arrive, arise uh, routinely in domestic violence situations. So if you're interested in learning a little bit more about that, why doesn't she just leave a new perspective? And that's available on Amazon.com. If I go to uh, farout.org, what what am I going to see? You are going to see uh, there are a series of articles there about um, survive, surviving and how to be a great friend. And then there's also, you're going to see a little list of tools and resources. So there's some great downloadable tools on repairing relationships, boundary setting, and these are all designed with friends and family in mind. Okay. And if I'm an organization in the community, and I think our organization would benefit from uh, learning a little bit more about this, does the, do you have a speakers bureau or um, do you have people that will go out to other community organizations? We, yeah, we absolutely do, and I would say the, the first place for them to go is just go to our main website, which is nwnetwork.org. There is a resources page, and there is truly some depth of information just to read. There are downloadable tools, and, of course, our contact information is there. Um, they can reach out to us. In addition, on our news and events page, there is a list of our webinars. Those are offered at no cost. And that's so, open to anyone. If I as Those are actually open to anyone. Wanna... Great. Yep. So those webinars are wonderful. Members, yeah. So those are those are no char yeah, no charge. Yeah. Those are available to anyone who is interested. Oh, wonderful. I've learned so much today and I think it's indicative um my I'll finish with this little little story. I usually try and search for a quote on our topic that day and uh end the show with that quote. I could find nothing that talked about marginalized communities and domestic violence. Nothing. Hmm. Um, <laughs> it's kind of surprising to me. Uh, is that surprising to you? Uh, it's not. It's not surprising, really, because um, you know we've been doing this work since 1987, and we still find folks don't know that we're here. So we still have lots of work to do on getting the word out. Yeah. It takes decades sometimes to really educate people um, about an event that's very common, uh, rape, domestic violence, uh, you know, all of those things. It takes a really, really long time uh, until people can really kind of understand and get on board with what's happening. So I really appreciate your joining us today. I learned a lot, and um, as I said, I took some notes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so... And I plan on going to fireout.org and checking that out as soon as we're done. So I think that I learned a lot, and, and uh, it's important for me to know that. So thank you. Thank you for the work that you do. 
and um, it just is is wonderful. And again, the whole thing that I got out of this conversation is that although there are some special needs with special populations, we have more commonalities than differences when it comes to abuse and domestic violence. And uh, that that's something good for me to note as well. Um, Great. Not, not always is difference a huge difference. So thank you so much, Dawn. I appreciated it. And uh, join us next week for another topic on domestic violence. I'm Heather Stark. <laughs>